Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropreneurs of the regenerative movement, people who are committed to and who showcase planetary leadership. My name is Julian Guderlei, and in today's episode, I'm co-hosting an interview with Rhonda Fabian from Cosmos Journal, and our guest is Ruri McKiernan. Ruri is an award-winning social innovator, campaigner, and charity founder. He's a Fulbright scholar, a former presidential appointee to Ireland's Council of State, and a regular media contributor on social, environmental, and health issues. He hosts the popular Love and Courage podcast, which features inspirational voices for change from around the world. He travels throughout Ireland and abroad, offering talks, workshops, retreats, consultancy, and campaigning support to individuals and organizations working for change. And he recently published a book called Hitching for Hope, based on a hitchhiking trip through Ireland. So with these words, welcome Rory. Thanks very much, Julian. Uh, pleasure to connect with you. I'm coming here from uh, Lynch on the west coast of Ireland. Um, it's actually quite a rural place, relatively speaking. And uh, I don't know, it always amazes me to just have that connection with the world. I, I, I think we can, you know, we, we can take it for granted now that so many of us are living on Zoom or Skype or whatever your platform is. But I just often take a moment every day i'm on to people in new york or san francisco or wherever and um it just excites me i've i've always been excited about connecting with people wherever they may be but there's something about the international travel aspect and particularly then being on the remote edge of western europe so uh it's lovely to to talk to you yeah i i, I love that you're highlighting that and acknowledging that because the planes of zoom have become like um, you know, like almost like a country in itself where, where we can meet internationally and, and exchange our thoughts, our ideas, our practices. Um, and let's, let's maybe start there. We, we're in special times. It's, it's the middle of May as we're recording this of 2020. Um, you know, a lot of people have been in, in, in isolation for, for a long time. So what are some of your practices that give you this strength, this clarity and this hope in, on a daily basis? Oh, you're, you're, you're hitting on a sore point, Julian. Um, my practices are a little bit weak at the moment, I have to admit. <laughs> I'm living, <laughs> yeah. I, as I said, I'm kind of living on Zoom a lot of the time. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a double-edged sword, isn't it? It, it? At one level, it's so stimulating and exciting. And then on another level, it's so draining and not life-affirming. And one of the practices that really... Um, brings me alive is sea swimming and jumping in the sea and it's pretty cold which is one of the reasons it's so invigorating um which i've been slacking off in, in the last week or so i have to admit um but the other big one is uh meditation as as a basic as a staple diet i mean it's it's like it's like air at this point if i if i don't have it i know that something's wrong well you know you, you can get away with it, unlike air, you can get away with it for a few days, but it's a bit like, you know, that old kind of analogy of not brushing your teeth and mm -hmm. you'll, you'll start to feel a bit grotty. Not that I've never not brushed my teeth. <laughs> I hear you though, I experience meditation in a similar way. You get away with it for two, three days without it and then it's like time suddenly crunches you into this different, different state. Yeah, I think you start, ultimately for me, I start to feel a little bit agitated. It starts to kind of, you start to notice, like if you, if you bring your awareness to your mood and I suppose the interactions with loved ones or, or colleagues even that you just can be a little bit more frustrated or like emotions such as anger can come to the surface. And once that kind of baseline practice is there, I think it diminishes and prevents a lot of unnecessary uh, trouble in the world for me and I would feel that at a global level or a national level at a social level that um, the more of us can practice at that level then the more harmonious I think each day can be now I am fortunate that my wife is a meditation teacher so I have an inbuilt reminder in the house every day that's better than any app yeah yeah, yeah big time and better better looking as well uh, yeah, app, I mean, apps are great, but uh, and technology is great, but human beings are, are where it's at, you know, and uh, 
I'm all for like technological innovation. I, I bring that to my own work a lot. Um, but I think what, what many of us are feeling right now is, is certainly the benefits of technology and, and the gratitude for that, but also the reminder of how we miss each other and how we need each other. And I think enforced separation, enforced isolation, um, if anything good is gonna come out of it, it might be a resurgence in connection. Beautifully put. It's, it's like we have to learn, or in a way we, we get to learn to become literate about how to use media and how to use our digital tools. Because if we, if we don't know how to put them away, they, they turn into a complete different form of enslavement. I'd love, to, I'd love to start speaking and sharing about your book a, a bit more and uh, understand this journey that you had um, a little while ago. Um, you know, the main theme is hope. And I think uh, hope is, is something that is more than ever relevant right now is like, what are we actually even hoping for? And so maybe let's, let's start there. Like, is it enough to be hopeful for a world where, you know, we, we, we become literate about media or we, we, we learn to balance the time between meditation and, and showing up on Zoom or, or is there more than just hoping? hoping? Yeah, I, I guess people have uh, different understandings of the word hope and it, it can be attributed to religious practice. It can be attributed to, um, I guess, a passive sentiment whereby we, we can kind of disavow or, or, or take a step back and, and hope something is going to happen, something in our own lives or in the world is going to improve magically almost. And, and to, to an extent, I do believe in that magic, the magic of possibility, the magic of the unexpected. But on the other hand, I also believe in agency. I believe in uh, seizing uh, our power to make things happen. And you might even say co-create uh, the magic, you know? So I think that's, for me, my understanding of hope comes from that. It comes from uh, a knowledge also of history where we've seen uh, how change happens, how, how wonderful things happen and, and things that have happened in our own lives. And I think when we can connect with um, the essence of truth, of how positive change can occur, then it creates almost a, um, a foundation for hope that is more, it's more grounded, you know? It's not, it's not just a, a kind of a, a naive hope. Uh, so when we think of like social movements, for instance, and we know that whether it be the end of slavery or civil rights era or women's liberation, um, or even the current rise of the youth student climate justice movements, um, like people would have hoped for those things to happen, but other people got out and, and made them happen. And um, I suppose that's where the participation kicks in. And um, I think the more of us that are participating and active at whatever level that may be, it may be in conversation, it may be in campaigning, um, it may be through podcasting. Um, the more of us joining those dots, I think we can kind of weave uh, almost a quilt of hope around the world where, where we're kind of in, in, a, in a hopeful dance, if you like. So dear friends, I'm going to jump in here a little bit. Um, I was thinking of a passage in your book, Rory, where a young a gentleman said that he was feeling quite hopeless and he was feeling some despair. And then suddenly he met a woman and he fell in love and this gave him a lot of hopefulness mm -hmm. suddenly. And it really uh, caused me to contemplate this link between love and hope. Um, you know, you were talking a little bit earlier about practices. And I think that, uh, yes, we could have a meditation practice and so on. But I think that hope is also a practice. I think mm -hmm. hope is a, um, a way of thinking and being that, um, you know, comes up from, from within us. But there is this link to love. I think if we're not really feeling a love for the world or a love for others, or maybe it could be a partner, it's hard to be hopeful about uh, the future. So that was one thing that came up for me. And I just want to also say, uh, I want to thank Julian for having me on. This is really sort of an experiment for Julian and I. We haven't co-facilitated uh, co a uh, podcast before. And as the editor of Cosmos Journal, 
Um, I really welcome these kinds of, of collaborations because I think that when we can um, really come together in, in our true, with our true selves and share what we have, um, this is where a lot of uh, transformational energy comes from. And that's what's so lovely about the book is that these encounters are so serendipitous. You know, you're hitchhiking around um, Ireland and it's such a lovely book to read when you're in this quarantine situation that we're in because each one is a lovely en encounter. And so I'd like you to maybe speak about this, uh, these qualities of um, openness and trust and hope as practices. What was this practice like for you of going around Ireland and opening yourself up to strangers. Thanks, Rhonda. It's it's lovely to connect with you, and uh, and uh, I, I'm I'm grateful for your question as well. I th I think you um, you make a very good point uh, around hope as a practice that and and a practice implies that it needs tending to. It's it's it it needs cultivation, you know, and I think like that openness does as well um and so thinking back in my own life um i grew up in a in a rural part of ireland in the northeast and hitchhiking was a was a practical means of a to b for many people it was a a country that was less developed uh, less urbanized uh quieter uh what some might call poorer but but by one standard of economic measurement and I guess it was a, a friendly kind of place as well, but openness was very much part of my culture, if you like. And there was a sort of a, a collectiveness around how we looked after each other. So hitchhiking was just, it wasn't even a thing. It was just integrated into how we operated, you know? And I suppose that informed my, um, my worldview and how I traveled elsewhere in the world and how I approached people over the years in that I just always had a quite an openness to me. However, I think something happened in my 20s, uh, most likely a, a range of experiences, and, and this is where we've all had them, where you know our trust is broken or we're let down or, um, or, or we allow ourselves and, and in some ways can become co-conspirators or complicit in our own allowing that openness to become a closeness and and i think if you take a, a compassionate view of that it's because we we got hurt and we don't want to feel that again you know but the, the edge with that is that um we might think we're protecting ourselves but we're actually denying ourselves further enriching experiences so I, I did recognize that in myself, you know, and I, I think the working world is um, for the most part a hardened place, you know, and I include the nonprofit uh, industrial complex <laughs> in that, in that uh, it can take on a lot of the uh, practices and cultures of the corporate or the state world. and often those practices are not set out to cause harm. Uh, often, sometimes they are, but often they're seen as just practices that we need to apply to gain efficiency and productivity. In many ways, they come from a military, a military model. Um, but I think they can kind of turn us hard, you know, and they can turn us against each other. And um, I think, you know, it's just I, I've seen so much burnout and that's a big theme in my book and that's how the book starts off is burnout and, and by me as a founder of a charity in Ireland many years ago um, I thought I was getting away from that sort of corporate uh, way of being and that I had experienced it very young I was grateful to experience it very young um, but I thought I was getting away from it and in a way I, I created the same thing for myself um, and that's, you know, that old song, what, what song is it? There's a song that's like, you do it to yourself. And uh, so, you know, we can blame governments or we can blame, blame the man, but sometimes like you are the man or I am the man that's creating your own prison. Mm -hmm. So I think there was definitely true burnout or I think any kind of illness 
can create an opportunity for awake, an awakening or a remembering or some sort of profound change. And I think all of these things came together for me around the time of this hitching trip where I wanted to return to that version of myself that I once knew. And that's where that openness comes in, you know, and the desire and, and, and that's what I want in this world. But we all have to assess our own relationship and complicity in, in, in allowing the other to continue, you know? Mm. Having a follow-up question to that, I'm really curious about that process of trust. I believe part of this current global planetary situation is that we have to relearn how to, how to trust. And so is there something that you could crystallize on that is, like, that is required for you to have trust or to, to say, I'm, I'm in a situation where I can just let this, this hardness or this, like, this edge that you just pointed at the corporate kind of military mm -hmm. complex that you can just see, oh, that's present now. Here I am, I can soften and relax into the moment. Yeah, I, I think um, as Rhonda was saying, like it, it, it is, it's a practice, it's a daily practice in, in humanity. And it's continually tuning in to, I think you also talked about love and love as a, like my podcast is called Love and Courage because I do believe those are two primary forces that I want to hang on to in my own life that I feel I want to never let go of that as a as a hook as an anchor um, and I want the courage to remember to manifest that so I, do, I also don't see love as a passive dormant thing that just sits there on a on a greeting card once a year that it has to be brought to life as a practice so I think that's where the meditation and the interconnectedness of all the various practice come to play that if you wake up every morning and and remember who you are and what you stand for and what the operating system is um that the operating system is not zoom and it's not work and it's not money and it's not worry that the operating system is one that that we've signed up to call love and and i think um everything flows from there you know i think that's where the openness and and the connection can come from and i'm not for an instance pretending that i i do this well every day because i'm i'm as uh distracted and as as uh, <laughs> I, I i would even go so far as i'm i'm more distracted uh than the average person you know i i'm I'm attracted to knowledge and people, and that can also be my downfall. So, because I, I spend my time buzzing around trying to capture all the ideas and have all the conversations, and I, I do need to, to make way for that contemplation. So, as we speak here now, I have a kind of deep need in me right now to have contemplative time, and I'm, I'm grappling with that. Uh, I know I can make it happen, but I'm just, I need to to get on with it. I haven't spent much time in your country, but one thing um, I, I noticed, you know, in the book and from my own experience with hitchhiking uh, thousands of miles is that uh, this, this incredible, the, the um, coincidence that you encounter, you know, you meet someone who knows someone that you know, or, you know, you meet someone that you knew 20 years ago, um, or you discover some odd local connection to, to something. And what, what does that say about the Irish mindset? I mean, how, how does that really sort of, uh, to, to live in a world like that, to affect the psyche of the people who live there? It's like a big family. Yeah, it is, it is, it is. We're, uh, you know, we're just like a kind of, a big, a big crazy family on a rock on the edge of Europe. Uh, you know, I, it, it's, it can be a crazy place to be sometimes and a f also very frustrating place. And, and I guess that speaks to the family analogy as well, is that families aren't always uh, co cohesive units. And um, we've certainly had our fair share of troubles as a family. Um, but what, what country hasn't? So I don't think we're unique in that regard. But I, I do think there's a, a sense of scale in the mix here, you know. I, I, 
I think smaller places by definition allow more interconnectivity. Not, not always, they can be quite insular places as well and quite disconnected, but, but I have found that, um, you know, even right now I live in a town that's, there's only like 800 people here. And then there's another town nearby that has another thousand or so, but I mean, yeah, it's it's a kind of like village life, but then if you bring that around Ireland, there's all these villages, all these towns, and then like obviously as the years go by, we're becoming more urbanized with every year. And Dublin is a quite a big city at this stage, and and there are several other bigger towns and cities. Um, but certainly, it is something that we have, and I would love that we hold on to. And I've seen it all around the world. I've traveled a lot where Irish people gravitate to each other, and within 60 seconds they've figured out who knows who and and it just creates this great flourishing you know and i i love it i love it dearly and i think it's the best things uh, the best parts of that notion of being a tribe uh, i think sometimes tribalism can have a negative and uh, negative dimensions to it um but tribalism tribes in in their in their in their i suppose their positive forms can can be uh, units of people that look after each other and care for each other and identify with each other you know but uh, as long as that tribe um i guess doesn't go into itself at the expense of other tribes and and start thinking that it's in some ways superior and i would also add that sometimes they can feel maybe that they're inferior and i think that's something that ireland has suffered with over the years and uh, traditionally, we like to blame colonialism, um, but I, I don't think it can be um, ignored. The, the legacy of, of hundreds of years of your language, culture and customs being diminished and overruled. And that, that is the same story of uh, dozens, if not hundreds of countries around the world, throughout Africa, Latin America, Asia. Um, and so when, when we want to understand the world as it is now, I think it is important to look to history, but also not to get trapped in history. And I think sometimes, uh, and I, I've, I've been guilty of this in the past myself, of getting stuck in stories of history that I'm also interested in the future. And I would like to see that Ireland is a more confident place than it once was. And I think that is happening. There's, a, there's an assertiveness emerging. So I'd like to keep that those notions of familiarhood, being a family, being a tribe, being which is ultimately about being a community. And I would like that we keep that as, as we continue to develop and whether we grow in terms of population. Although I, I think we are growing a lot and there's probably gonna be a lot more babies after the COVID crisis. So uh, apparently yeah. birth rates, apparently condoms are selling quite well these days. So, <laughs> but which would, would imply there won't be babies, but who knows? Maybe Who knows? Also. We will know in about in about seven to ten months if the birth <laughs> rates go up after COVID nineteen. Yeah, I, I'd probably bet on them going up myself. Um, I like where you just went with that because this is something that I think is is a very um, and you mentioned it like it's a it's a global planetary kind of like a human phenomena at this point. Like we are we've been globalizing as an economy and as a as a world for for some really good reasons and then some for some really like like poor side effects and as part of that cultural identity and 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 having like rich traditions being passed on is, is probably one of the most important um i would say one of the most important pieces to it because that's what gives us this this ability to connect with the earth with each other with our ancestors and it, it seems like it's getting a, a little bit lost in this hyper technological world that we're in yeah yeah, and you know, I have a sense that um, some of the rise of um, of what some people call the alt right or the the um, I I go so far as to say fascism. Um, I think some of that is a is an understandable desire for rootedness, uh, and it's just taking. I would feel the wrong form. Um, but rather than just seeking to cancel it, which is obviously a natural impulse that we want, we, we, we obviously don't want uh, to, to give platform or credence to any 
form of whether it be hate speech or division. Um, but I think if we're going to address that and the very real threat that it poses, I'd say it's even more than a threat. It's a reality in, in, in many countries, uh, whether it be Hungary or Poland or Brazil or the United States. Um, there's certainly echoes of it in the UK and there's, there's echoes of it in Ireland. It takes many different forms as well. Sometimes it has a lighter shade and I'm not talking about race, but sometimes it has a, it has a, um, it doesn't always appear as, as a, as a full frontal fascist entity, if you like. Um, but I think that some of what's informing it is um, an innate desire for people to feel something more rooted and something more connected and to have their primary needs better taken care of. So I think what's been happening over the last 30 years is that we've been offered 500 types of the same chocolate bar and we've, we've been developing like a billion different apps to mind our mental health. And, you know, we're being promised travel, adventure and happiness at the click of a button. Um, but those aren't really speaking to fundamental human needs and you know, obviously we, we have those needs we spoke about in terms of tending to the garden of our own emotional well-being, our own spirituality and so on. But there are also the very real needs of health, healthcare, housing, like in Maslow's hierarchy that like at the end of the day, most people, all people desire food and shelter. And if those aren't being looked after, then, you know, never mind your 500 types of chocolate bar, you know. Um, so. I think like there's been a version of society um, being developed that is is promising a lot and delivering uh, very little and that we're at a breaking point. And unless we address the underlying uh, disruption and, and dysfunction, then it's going to take a very nasty, uh, a very toxic and a very probably violent uh, way of manifesting a solution. Um, and so I see that as a choice as to how we want to respond to that. And I think there's a great moment upon us now whereby, you know, that all the rules are being, uh, are being disrupted. And I, w I was about to say rewritten, but they're not rewritten yet. Uh, right. so, so let's see what kind of rules we want to put on the, on the, the, the legislative books, you know, and what kind of new legislation are, is a legislation based on love and based on well-being and based on the welfare of humanity and, and ecology for that matter, uh, because that's the other perfect storm at play here. Uh, it's all coming at once. And so it's, it's a catastrophe on the one hand, um, but it's also a beautiful moment if we reframe it as a a point of uh, possibility and I, I do believe in that. Uh, I am hopeful of that and, but I'm only hopeful because I, I see people like you both and I'm connected with enough people around the world that give me enough hope and that in the days of which there are days where you start to wonder and you get a bit overfed by the negative that you are reminded that no, we've got this, you know, and um, and I do believe that. Um, but it's uh, it, it's unwritten, you know, and uh, I think that's it's up to us to write the script. And uh, I'm a big believer in the power of of people to to make it happen. Nothing is inevitable. Beautiful, really uh, powerful uh, words, and it reminds me, you know, of the um, phrase that we make, we make the path by walking, and I, I think that that is exactly the moment that we're in, where how we walk forward, you know, into the light out of this, this time is going to um, define who we become in the uh, decades, for decades to come, and um, on that note, I mean, as a social activist, I noticed, you know, in your book, there, there was a, um, an emphasis on, you know, essential work. And one thing that this virus is doing is spotlighting all the areas, right, where the cracks are. And so what we consider essential is changing 
and especially what we consider essential work. I mean, here we talk about essential workers in healthcare, but also the people who pick up the, the trash, the sanitation workers. And um, there was a lovely woman in your book, Sonia, was that her name, who was a sanitation? Simona, yeah. yeah. Simona, yeah, I like, really liked her a lot. Um, and other people who do the jobs that typically, at least in our society, in our country, you know, are really looked down on or, or under the radar, you know, teachers aren't well paid and healthcare workers and caregivers. And so how, how can we take this opportunity of um, understanding, you know, and I think that some of the, um, these more populist movements, you know, are fueled by, by people who feel unseen and yeah, who feel sure. yeah. unappreciated, right? So yeah. how, how can we learn from this experience to really value um, the work of everyone and to let people feel more seen, to, to be more seen and to meet people where they are. Um, I, I feel that, you know, I, I keep hearing that, that we're facing two choices. Either the world is gonna be this way and it's a horrible dystopian future or it's going to be, you know, we're gonna all transform and, and it's all gonna be great. Um, well, you know, it's going to be somewhere in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. Right, so what can we do to start bridging, bridging that, that, that divide? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think we think to um, what you talked about, the, the concept of essential workers, um, you know, what has been glorified in the last, particularly zone in in the last 30 years of what you might call the age of hyper-capitalism and um, hopefully the end era of hyper-capitalism. Um, I think what's been glorified and elevated are, are uh, in many ways false gods, you know, and um, and people on salaries that are many, many multiples of, of the, the people that are deemed to be under them. And I suppose, I mean, I don't have the, the study or the statistics to hand, but it wasn't that long ago that the average CEO's rage ratio to, to the workers was something like four to one, and then it became 12 to one, and now it's like, you know, a hundred to one and so on and so forth. Like the stats are incorrect, but you get the kind of principle. And I suppose like there's a, just a glaring inequality then. And I, I guess that's where the Occupy movement came from and the 1% and the 99%. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, it, it, a lot of it can be sorted out with income inequality. And um, because income inequality can also sort out health and housing. And um, if we can get some of those fundamentals, and I think that's where um, we, we do absolutely need to be careful not to spiritualize our way out of this and say it's, we're all going to kind of meditate and levitate our way around all of this is like there is some hardcore organizing needed here and um, you know the, the workers movements have always done that and um, that's where trade unions came out of that's where the notion of a, a weekend came from that's where once upon a time people worked 80 hours a week then they worked 60 and then they worked 40 um, and again in the last 30 years like in income uh, the social contract has almost been broken, you know? People don't feel like, the, the deal was that you would show up and do your thing even though you didn't necessarily like it, but you would get some degree of social mobility and you would get time for your friends, for your family, and you would be nurtured and that you could look forward to some form of a, a nice retirement. Um, and that deal has been broken in so many ways and that's because the, the guy at the top has run away with a lot of the loot and that belongs to, the, the workers that help create the wealth. And so trade union movements and other forms of workers movements have traditionally helped organize and vocalize on behalf of the worker. And I think a lot more work is needed in that regard. And obviously many people now are working in the so-called gig economy and the likes of the Uber and, and you know these various companies that are employing people over an app with no proper um, conditions, entitlements, um, it's just not good enough. And you, what you can see in the statistics around the coronavirus is that there's an absolute glaring disproportionate infection rate amongst low paid workers. 
and particularly in the United States and the, and the UK, which are the only places I've seen some reports from, but you will also then see racial dynamics at play as well, where particularly in the US, uh, African-American people, Latino people, people of color are massively uh, disproportionately affected and exposed to coronavirus. So that also has a correlation with the underpay and the low pay. And I have to say that Ireland also isn't immune to this in that we've become in many ways a low wage economy because we've been following that particular, uh, you could say it's a US model. I don't know if, if it's fair to say it's a US model, but it's, it's certainly a model. Whereas I think, um, I mean, it's, it's, everyone likes to talk about the Nordic countries, but there's a very good reason for doing so because they have shown that you can have, uh, you can have companies, you can have a competitive economy um, you don't have to impose Soviet-style communism. You don't become North Korea and Cuba and all those places people like to reference. You can still be a very open. You can still be very transparent. You can be still very democratic. You can look after everyone's basic needs and have a good life. And isn't that what we're all about? Like, we want to have a good life. Uh, you know, and then ideally we have a good life that is also of service to other people, that it's not just about your own you know, elevation and comfort. Um, and so I'd like to see some of those social values and that conversation come back to the fore as to the vision that we want. And in some ways, this is a, an age old campaign that we just have to continue on. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's also something that we can now see in, in some parts of the world, especially and this might be a coincidence or not, with, with female leaders, like I'll point at New Zealand, for example, where suddenly terms like well-being have an influence into what was formerly just a profit and capitalistic thinking. Yeah. And, and so these kind of um, values integrated into capitalism, they might be a great next step or even a direction sign. And so my, my question for you here is like the, one of the, the pillar questions of Green Planet, Blue Planet, and that is, I'm curious about your earth vision. So like your, your perspective of what could happen on this planet or what you hope for uh, can happen on this planet. And I want to give you a bit more context and let's zoom out in terms of time. So we're, we're looking at it in a seven generational perspective. Um, so we can maybe, you know, leave the coronavirus and our individual existence kind of on the sideline and just, just realize like what's actually our value and our wish for this planet? Like, is there something like an earth vision that's, that's slumbering within you? Yeah, I think John Lennon wrote a song about it. So uh, that was good enough for me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think like, you know, uh, yeah, it's funny, even when I want, I, I want to go and say peace and love, you know, they're, they're like words that have been so, yeah. in so many ways, like almost ridiculed, you know? Mm. Well, why, why can't they become the, the mantra or the vision that like, I guess it becomes the value system um, that we want to build this new future on. And I, I do like the, the notion of the seven generations. And, and I, I appreciate that a lot of that uh, cultural understanding can come from uh, indigenous wisdom and particularly, uh, well, I'm, I'm told that um, you know, First Nations people in North America did think of the seven generations ahead so that, you know, when you plant a tree, it doesn't, it's not for your own benefit, it's for your grandchildren's benefit. And so I like that, that we're trustees and caretakers of this earth. Um, but fundamentally, I think where the reckoning is at the moment, ecologically speaking, I think um, we have a mental health crisis from the perspective of depression, anxiety, over medication, so on and so forth. Um, and that speaks to like a, a, a very glaring dis-ease uh, at the core of the cultural, uh, of, of which is the, ultimately the opposite of well-being. It's, uh, there's a disharmony there. So, but, so therefore I, I, I want to see that peace and harmony in the human psyche where people can be at ease and can, can feel good about themselves, you know? I've worked in youth mental health and I've worked in various mental health campaigns and health promotion. And, and I see a lot uh, the suffering that is out there and suffering is obviously uh, an innate and understandable 
part of life, but the level of suffering and the cause of suffering that it, much of it that is happening at the moment is unnecessary. So that sense of inner peace where we can have a society and a humanity that is at peace in the self and with each other. But I'm, I'm, I'm remembering a book I read when I was in California when I was very young by Julia Butterfly Hill, which I don't know if either of you remember that book. Uh, I, I think it was called um, something Luna. Uh, Rhonda, do you remember it? Conversations with Luna. It's about a tree. It, yes, I, I know her. I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the of the book. Is, yes, so it, like yes, it was it was very uh, influential on me. The legacy of Luna. Legacy of Luna. Yeah. So um, I I read it when I was 21. I just finished a business degree. Uh, I moved to San Francisco, uh, as you do, and my eyes kind of kind of opened up to the world a little bit. And uh, I read this book about this young woman who'd lived among the trees uh, to kind of help save an old growth forest. And one of the trees was Luna. And then um, one of the quotes uh, that has stayed with me, I don't know, was it in the book or subsequent speaking from her was, there can be no peace on earth until there is peace with the earth. And so I think like peace, is my vision for the future is you know i don't i don't care if we have if we're floating around in like some kind of spaceships or if there's robots doing certain types of work or whatever but like how it looks i'm not overly concerned with as long as we are at peace with ourselves with each other and with the earth they're like my three go-to points and i guess i'm informed by a lot of the work of Joanna Macy in that regard in deep ecology and our, our connection with nature, but not seeing nature as something outside of ourselves, but seeing that we are nature. So, you know, I suppose I, met, I referenced John Lennon, but I'd also say like the Avatar movie does a good job in it as well. Like, you know, <laughs> that's my wife's favorite movie. She loves that. Uh, Although I don't know, I might be getting in trouble now saying that. She, uh, I don't know if she like broadcast that, but anyway, I think it's a great movie. Nice, I like that. Uh, yeah, I think that um, connection to place is where um, human culture flourishes. You know, when we know where we are, when we love the place that we're in, and we mm -hmm. steward the place that we're in, and I think that plays out at the bioregional level, especially. You know, because we, you know, you have rivers and forests and these are real ge ge geographic facts and so you know you, you live in harmony with the place where you live i think that's a good step and i think it has something to do with um a new definition of prosperity you know what is true prosperity and i yeah, think it's, ha it's yeah. happiness yeah or it's it's connection yeah, and big time yeah i mean so many people at the moment that uh aren't working and have lost their work as self-employed people and and there's definitely a lot of challenge at play at the moment and, and there are very real pressures and very real concerns there's also uh there's also a growing conversation that isn't necessarily a public conversation about the the quality of time and wellness that people are also experiencing not always equally i'll caution against that but there's a richness to people's time for themselves and their families at the moment that um creates that big conversation around do we really want to get back on that train you know because uh you know this this kind of get when we get back to normal it's like so many people normal is not a happy place normal is like 20 hours commuting every week because they can't afford housing in the city or whatever and i know san francisco is big on that and I, dublin is the same and you know it's one of the reasons my wife and i moved to the west of ireland because we were in that whole housing rent you know crazy rents how do you like afford those kind of rents or to buy a home as a younger couple essentially you need to join a certain type of train that you can't necessarily get off that train even if you want um, so we moved to the west of ireland um, and i guess things have just worked out you know uh, the first six months were not pretty for me anyway i didn't i didn't i wasn't 
I wasn't necessarily happy here. I didn't know people, but you know, I started volunteering, got involved, and now I know everyone everywhere I go. I'm like, how's it going? It's you know, I'm really feel part of the community. Only just a year and a half later, um, but the quality of life here is is so rich because there's a communitarianism at play. There's a looking out for each other, um, and there's also a slower pace because there's less places to go and be entertained and less stuff to go and buy. Um, so we have to kind of make our own quality of life with each other. And sometimes that's, you know, I get that, like, obviously when you're younger, you want to like burn it up more in a nightclub or whatever. I'm not denying that cities are exciting, good places. And, and I love cities, especially for the cultural diversity. Um, but there is something there, I think that rural life can, can teach us, you know? And, um, but I'd like to see uh, cities teaching rural places and rural places teaching cities. And I think I'm living in this kind of hybrid world at the moment where I'm in this rural locale, like right outside my window, I, I, they're gone now, but right outside my window, there are cows walking around, you know? They're, I can see them in the back of my screen. And uh, yet this is every day and I'm on to colleagues. I work uh, with an amazing Mer American, um, well, it was founded in the US called Narrative for their uh, empathy building nonprofit. Uh, so I'm on calls in New York and Connecticut and elsewhere every day. And I love the fact that I can have a rural life with a with a urban global connections. And I think the internet has opened up this level of possibility and hopefully consciousness that can reveal to us our interconnectivity and I guess that's the work we do at Narrative 4 is, is it's all about stories and exchanging stories and seeing that we're ultimately at a cellular level all the same. And the more we share those stories, the more we experience that empathy, feel that connection, and therefore, I guess, feel, feel more hopeful. Yeah, beautifully put. And there's, there's, there's lots in there that we, that we could unpack further, but you just made a, like a, you know, you just pointed at the word story and storytelling. And I think it's, it's really also our responsibility to tell the stories of what works um, really well. And so I want to invite you, uh, Rory, to, to um, offer a short reading of a passage of your book. Um, you know, so people can Yeah, get, that uh, sounds good. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to, but I'm, I'm also noticing that my battery is about to run out. And that's, uh, my lead has fallen out. So apologies for that. Um, no Highly unprofessional, I know. <laughs> this is this is the reality of, of, of recording, right? Oh, is, everything was, in everything the was going studio. so well. <laughs> Green planet, blue planet, unplug. Green planet, blue planet, unplug. And, and so, and this is part of the storytelling too, right? Is like, let's show more of the real stories, what it means yeah, to yeah. you. Because well, we've, we've glamorized stories over decades so much that we have these pictures in our mind that once I achieve this well-paying job or I make it to San Francisco or whatever it is in your mind, that then I'll be on that level of um, impeccability. But really, like, that's just not part of what it means to be a human. And so uh, we've got to plug in our computer. Um, uh, yeah, sometimes your lead falls out of your computer. Uh, but I want to show you these cows before I go. Please. Can oh wow yeah for, for everyone getting the audio episode only we're, we're looking at the beautiful countryside uh, yeah you're gonna have to give a commentary on the uh on the cows but uh i just find it fascinating i've been a, a meat meat eater a lot of my life but um i guess i'm pretty much a vegetarian now um sometimes i slip a little bit but um seeing these cows has actually been such a revelation for me over the last while i'm like I'm almost living with cows <laughs> and uh, they're other beings, you know, I can really see now how in, uh, in different cultures that they're sacred animals. And uh, uh, I guess that's, that's a whole nother level of um, empathy and connection and story is uh, other beings and creatures on this planet and how we see them. And, you know, so a very important part of the, of the story though, right? Yeah. Because yeah. Really, like what we've developed, what it, what it seems like to me is we've developed an egocentric uh, worldview where we're in the center of the story as humanity and everything else is around us. But like in, in the ecology that is observable and real, we're, we're part of that circle. No one is in the center. We're, we're all next to each other. Right. 
And yeah, I always, yeah. I always go, go to that picture of what if another species, let's call them extraterrestrials, would come to this planet? Who would you want to connect with on this planet? And I would for sure, if I was new to Earth, I would for sure want to see the whales and the dolphins and, and the cows. And God knows. And the cows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this plays out especially at this bioregional level where there's so much symbiosis and connection. And the more that we can make that connection between rural, town, and city, part of our economic uh, infrastructure, I think we can really create those sort of holistic systems that um, are regenerative. So uh, this is a wonderful opportunity, you know, to live in the, in the uh, rural part of your bioregion and to get to know your cows and your pastures and the people who tend them. And it's a, it's a lovely opportunity to connect the work you've done in the city with the work uh, in, in the rural areas. Yeah, yeah. So you're gonna read for us then? Yeah, so um, I gotta read a little bit of passage here. Um, it's by, it's, it's where I am. Um, <clears throat> I end up visiting this guy called Colin McEnomara who is, he's a bit of a sage. Um, he used to be in a like really famous indie rock band in Ireland. And I guess they never broke up, so they're still, they're still known to play. Um, I think, yeah, he's, he's around 49, he's late 40s. So he, he was in mid 40s when this was written, or early 40s. Um, but he's a violinist, and he's also deeply rooted in Irish traditional culture. His father in particular, but well, actually his mother and father, they're both um, great, um, proponents of the Irish language and Irish culture. And they're kind of, for me, like rooted in a, an ancient wisdom uh, that sometimes, um, sometimes we get disconnected with here in Ireland as well, because we're, we are a globalized country and we get disconnected with our own customs and our own heritage and our own roots. So Column's music, I'd encourage everyone to check it out. It's, it's pretty mystical stuff. And, uh, his name's Colin McEnumber. So I meet him and he, in this passage, talks about the stage at which he saw Ireland at as I spoke to him. Now, this was around the collapse of the Celtic tiger economy, where Ireland went from one of Europe's poorest countries to one of its wealthiest countries and then crashed again back down. And there was a lot of turmoil and turbulence and questioning going on. And I would say that is not dissimilar to the time we're in at the moment, where there's a monumental um, chasm has opened up and, and there's this kind of moment of questioning. So Colm, as I meet him, says, he says, Ireland is in a wonderful stage of bloodletting and realization and the opportunity for change is great, but it needs to be seized, Colm said after I asked him about the country's current turbulence. So I see it as something that is inspiring rather than depressing. The Celtic tiger period and the abandonment of community and embrace of the individual consumer that it entailed was one extreme in a cyclical pattern. What goes up must come down. And I think we've just hit the ground over the past few years. I think it's a case of, yeah, let's do things differently. So I think that's the opportunity. We live in a time when secrets are impossible to keep anymore. So the truth is coming to light, left, right and center, whether that be the Anglo tapes or WikiLeaks or pillars crashing around us, religion and Catholicism and bankers. These had power because we invested power in them. So it's a case of realizing our own power. I think that's where my optimism would be. Column described what he saw as life's two basic choices. Either you control, Either you can trust in your fellow human beings that they're essentially good, that they share your hopes and dreams of building a better world with you, that there are people or, or that there are people that you need to guard yourself from in case they come and steal all your stuff. I think we've been embracing the fear model, the one the Western world has been embracing for the past 20 or 30 years. And we need to go back to the love model. Yay. You need to go back to the love model, which is about sustainability, tolerance, embracing diversity, and celebrating of individual talent. So that's Colm. Wonderful. Very much resonates with what you shared earlier about the love model, right? This, this imagination. 
Yeah, I guess, I guess it's, it's so easy to dismiss that language, isn't it? You know, and um, I often am mindful. I have this sense that um, I have some amazing guests on my own podcast. And, and I have a feeling that sometimes I, listeners don't maybe tune in because the words love and courage may be off-putting to some people. And you might ask yourself why. But I think there also are gender dynamics at play sometimes. And, um, you know, it is a fact that like a lot of guys, and I, I have included myself in this mix, we can be disconnected from um, sometimes uh, the emotional realm and, and the realm of love and, and seeing love as a value. And, and I guess, I don't know how comfortable I am with the language around toxic masculinity, but I appreciate where the conversation is coming from. Um, I mean, I guess if we want to get into that conversation. Uh, I, I think it's a much broader one, but I, I definitely think there are uh, challenges in, in how many of us have been raised or, or cultured or uh, socialized as men to be disconnected from our hearts. And that has fed into the economic and social model that is very much one that values the material and the external and less so the internal realm of, of kindness and compassion mm. and so on. Uh, and that perhaps sometimes they're referred to as feminine values. And I, I don't see why that would need to be the case whatsoever, that, um, that we can't have a, a, a balancing, you know? And I think that's where more um, female leadership can help. Um, you know, geez, you look at New Zealand, you look at Finland, Iceland, there's so many places, but Scotland is another one. Um, but even Germany, like Angela Merkel is, uh, she's tough, like, you know? So anyway, these are bigger conversations, but I think like if you start, if, you, if we take love as a guiding force, then, if our economic models come out of that, it's, it's basically let's decide what our guiding force is. And at a political level, I rarely hear leaders talk about what the guiding force is. You know, I get that they're playing to the crowd and they need to promise this and promise that. But like, show me something I can really believe in. And I think that's where a lot of crisis is coming. And that's where we get populists, uh, Populists taking advantage of vulnerable people in their hour of need and promising them a quick fix solution that is ultimately going to, um, you know, it's, it's going to imprison them in the long run is, uh, you know, and I, I think there's such a big misnomer in this idea of the strong man because uh, I don't think that these men are so strong really, you know, like, uh, because they mostly rely on brute force and um, they need armies and um, so I think to have some kind of rebalancing where like us as men can start to uh, reevaluate what is masculinity and, and how, how can, how, what is healthy masculinity. Uh, I guess there's another conversation needed for women and there's a conversation needed across all and even what is gender is another overarching one as well. Um, but certainly, the role of women in governance and leadership um, has been long overlooked. And I would like to think that the hour is upon us now um, to have a more uh, feminine, a feminine connection to, to leadership. And I suppose that, that's, that's kind of such, that's, that's almost the cry of the people at the moment is, is leadership and like, Jacinta Dern in, in, in New Zealand and, and uh, Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, like they're not hard left radicals, you know, they're pretty centrist to some extent. They might be a little bit center left, but um, there's the, what I see in them both is like there's a current currency of kindness. And uh, I don't see why that can't be possible amongst uh, male leaders as well. But if it takes more female leaders, then let's, let's have it. And I, I think that's playing itself out also in the youth student climate justice movement. And I can see a large percentage of young women coming to the fore as well. And I do think that for centuries, women have, not all, but many women have been denied their voice. And uh, that has manifested itself in, in many 
many great injustices and even you know right up to my mother mother's era um now she didn't have to but because she just was turned a different age but there was so many women had to were forced to give up their jobs and they had children you know and uh like the role of religion particularly in ireland hasn't been overly favorable to women many much of the time and uh like these are topics we could go on about and they touched yeah. on in the book and as maybe well. another time maybe another time yeah. we, we will I, i'd love to have a, a conversation and expand on the healthy masculinity um because i personally also agree like that word toxic masculinity is maybe just to, to blame and shame a certain aspect but then the question is where do we lead to right and you mentioned leadership which is the overarching theme of all these these conversations uh, we host in green planet blue planet is there is a request for a new kind of um, planetary leadership that takes this evolution into account and, and doesn't just marginalize humans into production factors but really realizes um, and even science, even science backs it up, right? There is there is this this state of coherence between heart and brain. And in this state of coherence, um, as you just said, Rory, the, the leading with kindness suddenly becomes available. I want to thank you so much for your time, for sharing from your book. Um, I know the book is just launching in North America, at least. Um, yeah. Maybe anywhere where people can can find more of you. I'm going to definitely link it out as well. Just Feel free to share. Yeah, so um, you can find various links to the book on hitchingforhope.com and uh, you can find me there as well on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It's Rory McKiernan. It's the Love and Courage podcast. Uh, so yeah, hitchingforhope.com. Uh, you find me there. And uh, I was due to go on tour to the US this summer, uh, which, you know, probably isn't happening. Uh, but, you know, part of me, if that gives the planet a chance to rest and you know if it means less carbon in the atmosphere and less flying then i think i'm also up for embracing that and um, i do feel very hopeful about the united states even though it's a challenging time and i feel i've taken a lot of my inspiration the people i've already referenced you know joanna macy um many others um i've met noam chomsky i've met so many great leaders and thinkers in the u.s and i'm optimistic you know and uh, i think it may be a case of like we're experiencing some darkness before the dawn and uh, this is the as joanna macy talks about the great turning i think uh, you know let's let's get out and help it turn rory at, at cosmos we look at the world through the lens of uh, transformation and for me um this book itching uh, for hope a journey into the heart and soul of Ireland is uh, very much a metaphor for the journey that we all have ahead of us um, that will be very much about opening ourselves to human connection and human understanding. Um, and so thank you so much for the wisdom of your book and for your journey. Uh, we hope to see more of you. And of course, if you come to the US, we look forward to uh, having a pint together. <laughs> oh god i think everybody needs a pint at this stage although that's a pint of kombucha or whatever you're having <laughs> uh listen it was great to uh, connect with y'all and i hope to uh, see you in person at some point and uh, thanks for your time thanks julian thanks Rhonda, and thanks to all the listeners lots of love to you all that's that another episode of green planet blue planet podcast i hope you truly enjoyed this one and received some insights knowledge and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life into your relationships or maybe even into your business and the way you show up for the world because this is a movement and we're all part of it and we're in this together we're here to create a world of a triple bottom line where you win i win and the entire planet wins we're raising consciousness together, and you know that. That's why you're listening. That's why I love you. So make sure to share the love. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Invite a friend to listen to a Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. And if you have an idea who else you'd like me to interview, make sure you reach out and send me a suggestion. Definitely check out greenplanet-blueplanet.com, the website to the podcast. I've created a lot of different offers for you, free content, free meditations for you to amplify your connection to self, 
the state of social impact in the world, and for you to connect and listen to who you could support of the people that I actually interview, because their missions are ongoing and a lot of them need more collaboration. And after more than 100 episodes now, with some of the world's leading social impact experts, I have synthesized my most inspired learnings and takeaways to create coaching and mentorship programs for you and the people around you. Let me share with you about planetary purpose coaching and mentorship experiences. If you're in a space in your life where you're ready to level up to amplify who you are, what's coming through you and what you're doing to give your gift to the world, then I would love to hear from you and I'd love for you to apply to one of my private mentorships or group mentorships. Last but not least, there's a few different group experiences I host both in person and online. All of them are quantum learning environments and I'm happy to tell you more. So simply inform yourself and stay connected because whatever resonates with you, I'm here to support you and bring out more purpose into the world. And with that being said, wherever you are in the world, make sure to be you, show up all the way, be all in, connect with someone today, make them smile, have yourself a stellar day. Lots of love to you and until soon.